This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Amsterdam, New York native Michael Sinquati. How you doing, Michael? Good, Bob. It's great to be back with you. Well, it's good to have you on again. We've talked with uh, Mike Sinquanti about his birthday books. He's put out two books of Amsterdam birthdays, birthdays of people from Amsterdam history going way back, but, you know, a lot of people from uh, the the last uh, couple of generations. And his latest book, it's out uh, recently, it's called Amsterdam, New York, Top Ten Lists. As with the birthday book, I think this is a good idea for wherever you are listening to the Historian's Podcast to do something about your community along these lines. Amsterdam, New York, Top Ten Lists uh, is Mike's book, and the book is right now available at Liberty Fresh Market in Amsterdam and the Book Hound, and you have an online location to order them. What what is that? Uh, Yes, Bob. It's genium.com slash book. So it would be G-E-N-I-U-M dot com forward slash book, B-O-O-K. Okay. And uh, Genium, I believe, is your company, right? That's the... That is my company, yes, yeah. sir. Okay. Where did this, I, I mean, the birthday book idea maybe is more self-explanatory. What, what, what did this, where did this idea come from to do top 10 lists for Amsterdam, New York? Well, it started with the birthday books themselves, Bob. I was writing about people and, um, in the process of writing about people, of course, all the research that I was doing, I was gathering information on the places and events and activities and things that those people were involved in. And many of my readers were asking me, when are you going to start covering things other than people? So I needed to come up with a format that would permit me to address things about Amsterdam's past that weren't people. And the top 10 list uh, sort of uh, evolved from there. I know it's a popular thing with the David Letterman show, the old David Letterman show, and top 10 lists are in all the online publications that we look at. So I I, I said, let me try this with Amsterdam. I I sampled it, I loved it, and I kept going with it. Mm -hmm. And you came up with many of these lists, or most of these lists, yourself, did you not? Yeah, most of them. The majority, uh, when when you say myself, I asked for ideas, and I got a lot of ideas, and I, I... I took those ideas and developed the lists myself. So, uh, but but the inputs from other people helped me determine which categories to cover. Mm-hmm. Now, and you also asked uh, people to come up with top ten lists. For example, uh, in the subject of uh, war heroes, I believe that uh, Bob Going, who has written two books about uh, Amsterdam and World War II, compiled that list. Did he not? Yes, sir, I did, and and that was one of the nice things about this format was my ability to be able to do that, uh, going to people who were experts in specific areas, like Bob, who has done two outstanding books on on Amsterdam's military history, Uh, yourself, who I was very thrilled to have contribute the uh, broadcasters list, top ten broadcasters, Uh, Bert DeRose with the, um, um, the, the, the most successful productions, his favorite productions. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I was able to go to these people and ask them to to help, you know, identify ten things that they felt made their area of expertise uh, special. Okay, and let me go through a couple of uh, those lists, you know, with those people, and go back to Bob Going. Uh, the list of Amsterdam heroes, I believe, is topped by Technical Sergeant Richard Marnell, who served in World War II, uh, fighting. Uh, the Nazis. 
uh, and he was a, a highly decorated soldier, and he, he was responsible for taking out uh, a nest, wasn't it, of uh, German machine gunners? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, Mr. Marnell was uh, toward the end of the war when he went when when he was uh, sent over to Normandy. He had just found out that two of his best friends from the south side. He was mistakenly told that two of his best friends from the south side had been killed, and it caused a, a rage inside of him. And he basically um, took that rage and and for the next several months uh, used it to uh, attack the enemy. And one of the things he did was personally, individually, go after a nest of uh, Nazi machine gunners who were firing on his pl- platoon and took them out all by himself. And he, he, he did several things, uh, earned several medals, uh, but all, all triggered by the rage that was in him when he found out two of his mm. buddies had been killed. And did he come home from the war? Did he survive the he war? Did. He survived the war. He came back. Uh, you know, he led the uh, victory parade in Amsterdam. Um, he was he received the, the distinction. Uh, the, the uh, the top medal I forget what the the medal of honor not the medal of honor but the one below that and he um it, but he had he had a, a really difficult time uh, after the war coping with the experiences he had in the war but he definitely was our most decorated uh, World War II hero and something um, completely different you mentioned the name Bert de Rose and his plays and to explain that to folks who are not from Amsterdam. There, was, there could be a Bert DeRose in your community. Bert DeRose was a high school drama teacher, ultimately a school principal, who produced plays for the high school with, with students, uh, both uh, straight dramas, and, uh, but he, he was also very well known for musicals. And he did yeah. plays in the summertime. It was always a, a great thing when I was growing up and you were growing up, uh, Michael, that uh, there was a Bert DeRose play being done every summer, and you asked Bert to list his top uh, ten or something like that. And at first he said, oh, I can't, didn't he? I mean, he said, they're all my children. He did, he did exactly. He said, they're all my children. I don't have any favorites. Um, and, and uh, it, you know, but he made it clear that he was going to, um, you know, talk about ten of his most memorable uh, productions, not his favorite, not his best, et cetera. And, um, he, you know, he went on to mention several of the ones that I personally went to when I was a kid. His productions, to try and, and let people who aren't aware of who Bert was uh, or what he did, his productions here in Amsterdam were our Broadway. I mean, they literally were the entertainment event of the year. Uh, and as you said, he did one in the summer. He also did one during the school year through the high school drama department. And those were uh, those were Broadway nights for Amsterdam. I mean, the places the, the auditorium at Lynch was packed, and um, uh, the the performances were excellent. Based basically because Mr. DeRose was such an outstanding purveyor of talent, uh, outstanding stage director, and he was able to get these young and in many cases during the summer, every person in the city who went out to those plays, many of them had no experience at all. But the entertainment value of what they put together was was really a you know a, a hallmark of our community for many 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 years. Mm-hmm. Now I, I just happened sort of for an odd coincidence was reviewing some of the notes we'd made uh, doing the an Amsterdam history documentary for WMHT Public Television, and my producer Steve Dunn had listed all these quotes from an interview with Bert DeRose, and and uh, what Steve wrote was. I, he said, "This is this guy is one of our best interviews. He, he 
he's always talking about community. The community does this. The community uh, does that. He was talking about how the the parents made the costumes, and the costumes were not shabby. You know, they were they really. <laughs> that was the amazing thing. Uh, he really when I when I talked about Amsterdam's Broadway. Uh, if you went to his shows, you were in awe at what they were able to recreate on that stage. And, uh, you know, Camelot, which, which was I, my first one that I really remember. Um, as you say, the, the sets, from the sets to the ushers, to the, to the music, to the, to the curtain, you know, it was just, it was like you were on Broadway, not, a, not in Amsterdam. Mm. And um, it, it really was a tribute to his ability to get the community to come together and put these things on. And, and uh, just everything was top shelf, at least that in our minds it was. And, mm. and that's all that counts, right? Yes. And what ends up is that at the top of his list, when he, I guess, finally agreed to do it, was the uh, musical Oklahoma, which had uh, one of the stars, the, the male lead, was somebody who's a top one on my broadcaster's list, Chester sure. Kukevich, who became the TV anchor in Boston, Chet Curtis. Right, which is an example of Bert's influence, again, of how he was able to take uh, kids out of high school hallways and classrooms who maybe uh, needed, you know, Chet, I believe Chet had just lost his parents uh, and uh, when he was in high school. But, but Bert was able to, to, to grab hold of these people and put them on a stage or backstage and, and, and draw out of them talent, talents that maybe they didn't even realize they had. But the bottom line was they... After they were done, they came through with a confidence of having performed in front of people. And, uh, you know, many of them, not just uh, Chet Curtis, but many of them have gone on to become, you know, very, very, very successful in fields involving entertainment. Another area where you have a number of lists uh, is in the field of sports. I, I, I gather from reading this book and, and others that your participation in sports was more as a spectator. I mean, mine was that way too. But um, you, well, for example, the one list I looked at where a, a very familiar name to me is number two. Or actually, the top two I know, but the second one I kind of grew up with uh, is the top um, boys or men's basketball high school teams from the public high school. And the, the top one listed was Todd Setnar, and the number two was the one that uh, was in school when I was in high school, and that's Tim Kolodje. Uh, yes. So you have a bunch of those lists. I do. Um, uh, sports has always been a huge part of Amsterdam's, um, you know, of, of Amsterdam's social life, our community. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I was a spectator. Although I, I participated, never, never uh, in school. I always had an after-school job, so I never really could make practices. But the bottom line being that you know they they became a gathering point for our community and a source of pride. And set uh, Todd Setner and Tim Kolodje and Mike Solicito and Dave Santos. What I liked about the top ten list is I was able to really, in, instead of just taking the individual, look at the entire program's history going back into the 30s. Uh, and it was it was just a wonderful experience to be able to um, you know show the evolution and, and what what came before the Setners and the Colosiers as well as after them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it really we have had a tradition of sports excellence that dates back to the 1920s out of Amsterdam High School and similarly at St Mary's Institute and Bishop Scully, uh, where uh, you know kids were able to um, on athletic fields of competition um, you know really. Uh, distinguish themselves, but also bring the community together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an important point. And well, I was more focused on 
my own upbringing on the basketball. Again, I didn't play, but that was the a big sport where our, the high school was very successful when I was a student. But what about some of the, the other major sports, you know, football, baseball, and whatever? Do, uh, do other some of those uh, top-of-list uh, names uh, that you can recall? Well, the, the football program, for example, uh, it started in the 20s at Lynch. And uh, do you, I don't know if you remember Jack Tracy, Bob. I've heard the name. Uh, but Jack, yeah, yeah. Jack Tracy was really the first great coach and athletic director in Amsterdam High School's history. And um, he started the football program in the 20s. And believe it or not, I think the first team was 8-1. and one, So, And uh, it, it featured some of the, you know, the, the cucks. It's funny because Tim Colosier's mom was a cuck, K-U-K. <laughs> right, right. And, he has uncles who were the greatest athletes, in my consideration, some of the greatest athletes in Amsterdam history. Uh, Steve Cook. Uh, I mean, uh, they, they were. They both went to Colgate University. They became um, all Americans in their sport. One in baseball. One in football. Uh, they they were outstanding people. Um, but the football program in the 30s uh, was 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 strong. And then in the 40s, during the wartime, it started dying down. In the 50s, I think we won nine games the entire decade, and it wasn't until the 60s. Right. And that's the truth. The nine games the entire decade of the 50s. But in the 60s, a gentleman by the name of Gene White came to Amsterdam uh, and became our athletic director and football coach. And he was the he was the gentleman who really turned turned the program into the rugged ram uh, tradition of, you know tough defense, off-season preparation, uh, game plans. He really, really brought the program to the next level. And the reason he was, he could hire great coaches. He's the guy who hired John Loss and Brian Mee and Frank DeRico. And he's the guy who instituted the weight programs. And if you talk mm-hmm. to uh, football players or Amsterdam natives like Dr. Pete Diamond, he credits Gene White with changing his whole life based upon, you know, preparing for things, being yeah. prepared, and facing t- challenges. And two other coaches I would mention would be Pat Laverio, who uh, came in in the, whatever we call it, the aughts <laughs> after the uh, year 2000. And then, uh, you know, put in a, on a personal note, uh, I noticed that my cousin Gary Cudmore gets two entries in your in your book from your index, once when he was a player at Amsterdam High in 67, and then he was uh, an assistant coach to both Frank DeRico and to Pat Laverio. He was, and Gary Cudmore was a superb, I mean, uh, from personal experience, I can tell you, having seen him play every sport, he was a superb athlete. He was the kind of athlete who did everything that was that he needed to do, but he never, 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 never was, you know, he played positions where he wasn't the only uh, he was like a linebacker. He was a captain. He was the guy who brought people together. He was an outstanding athlete and never got enough personal recognition, in my opinion. And here I am putting these top ten lists together, and he's never I, – I single him out, but I never, never, never put him in the top. And that's really – you know, that's one of the tough parts about making these lists where people like Gary Cudmer, who excelled at every sport – but didn't play the glory position. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, so he wasn't well, the quarterback, or he wasn't the center. In the his, his sons were. Both of his sons were quarterbacks at the high school. Outstanding quarterbacks, yeah. both right. of them, Brendan and Brian. Yeah, we're talking with uh, Mike Sinquanti about his new book, Amsterdam's Top Ten Lists. We'll be back in just a moment on the Historians Podcast. We depend on your contributions to keep the podcast going. Go to this website. GoFundMe.com 
forward slash historians2017. It's easy to donate online, but if you'd rather send a check, make the check out to Bob Cudmore and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. We're uh, talking today with the Mike Sinquanti about his Amsterdam's Top Ten List book, uh, which is uh, recently out. Uh, let me ask you a little bit about yourself. You're of uh, uh, Italian-American origin, both sides of the family? Uh, one side, my what? dad. Okay. And you grew up in the, the west end of Amsterdam, would you say? or what, what Yes, part? I did. I, uh, uh, west end on Leonard Street. Uh, my first home was on Leonard Street, and then later we moved over to Guy Park Avenue, that down by St. Mary's Hospital. But I've spent most of my childhood as a west end as a West End resident, yes. I noticed there was, I don't forget what list it came in, but again, it's just the story that uh, sticks with me. You went to a Guy Park Avenue school, and you said one of Amsterdam's top ten traditions, or it was either that or it was a top ten pastime, uh, was having snowball fights. And, yes. And you were, <laughs> and where you lived, were you a, a river rat or a hilltopper? Uh, hillbilly. I was a river rat, Bob, and... Uh, uh, those are people who live uh, south of Guy Park Avenue. People who live north of Guy Park Avenue were considered hillbillies. And uh, it was a wonderful tradition. Uh, dangerous. And well, it sounds like a tradition, but also sounds like there's a certain edge to it. I mean, you uh, you would fight snowball fights with these. Uh, uh, yeah, they were, yes, snowball wars. And we would uh, line up on the corner on the north side of Ev- on the north side of the corner of Evelyn and Guy Park Avenue and the south side of the corner. And we would hurl snowballs at each other across the avenue, and those fights would continue literally for for hours. I want to say hours. They seem like hours, especially once you got hit in the face with a giant ice ball. But um, <laughs> until until someone, a teacher from the school or <laughs> parents from the community, stopped them, and they they used to go. I mean, they were fun. They were outstanding fun, but also I mean, just epic snowball fights. Yep, and, just uh, would, never forget them. Between the river rats and the hillbillies. Sorry, I got that wrong. That's right. Now, was that a tradition or a pastime? I, fr- I called it a tradition. Okay. Uh, it, but anyway, it, I'd asked you when we were setting up to do the interview, I said, what was your favorite list? And you said, the ones that you maybe worked on the most, and they get really uh, quite extensive sections of, of the book, the top 10 traditions and the uh, top 10 uh, pastimes. And they are evocative uh, when you talk about the snowball fights. I remember I grew up in the, although I'm not Polish, I grew up pretty much in, a, in the Polish neighborhood at the, at the time. And uh, I lived, lived on Pulaski Street. And, we, and next to my house, which was number 28, and then there was a vacant lot and then the Ukrainian uh, rectory and church, St. Nicholas. But for some reason, that vacant lot had like a, a fort at the back. It wasn't really a fort, but it was like it was more like a pile of bricks. But it was something that you could hide behind. And and so there was like an advancing army of, you know, yeah. snowmobile fights when they... Yeah, every neighborhood had those those uh, those venues. Yeah. Well, and just tell me in general about the, the traditions. Um, again, I was asking before about your ethnicity. It seems that you, you speak of your own uh, Italian uh, traditions, such as, and I've heard this, and it really wasn't one of the traditions I, you know, that our family participated in, in in, in the way that you did anyway, and that was Sunday dinner at grandma's. 
Oh yeah, um, it was uh, it was an event in our house. Uh, you would go to church in the morning. Uh, we went to St. Michael's, and then you'd stop and get the news, the, the papers, um, usually at Trask's, and uh, then you'd go over to Grandma's house. And my grandmother lived uh, again on Leonard Street here in the city, and she lived in a duplex. And on one side she lived, the other side my aunt and uncle lived. But uh, the duplex, of the living room, the dining room was about ten by twelve, and there were. 13 people in the immediate family, all the uncles, aunts, cousins, and ourselves, and my grandmother, uh, who would eat around a table and every Sunday on this uh, 10 by 12 t- dining room with a, a stove that you would could have he- heated the uh, Wilbur Lynch High School all by itself. It would get that hot. Uh, but every Sunday we'd go over there with the papers, sit down, we'd watch TV tournament time, and then about 1 o'clock they'd say, come on, kids, get get in the table, hurry up, and, and uh, the 12 or 13 of us would sit around this small little table, and out would come the food. And the food, as I say in the book, it was, it was, a, it was a feast every Sunday. It would start with soup, and, um, and, you know, the slurping around the table sounded like the end of a drain, clean, drain cleaner <laughs> demonstration, because that's how much slurping would go on. And, uh, you know, then we'd she'd bring out platters of meatballs, five do- I'm not kidding you, five dozen meatballs, so that everybody could have five meatballs. And, I mean, today I only eat two meatballs. When I was four or five years old, I was eating five. <laughs> um, you know, five pounds of pasta in a, in a bowl big enough to, do, you know, to, to put a baby in and do, give them a bath. Um, and brujol and sausage. And, and, and this was every Sunday. And, and we'd always end our dinner with salad, where a lot of the tradition today is you start dinner with yeah. salad. We always ended ours with salad. I'm told that's really the European way. Is that what it, where it came from? Because yeah. I was never sure of that, but that, that's how it always was in my grandmother's house on Sundays. Yeah. But again, the, the, the food was one thing, but it was just the, the family being together, the, 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 the discussion going on around the table. You know, they spoke Italian. We, we were, so I learned words in Italian. I learned, you know, I learned when somebody was in trouble. I didn't know what trouble they were in, but just by the way they spoke, I knew that so-and-so was in trouble, and this one gambled too much, and that one was maybe cheating on his wife, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, but, but we were always told, kids, you got to finish. That. You left some ziti on your plate. Finish it up. It's a sin to leave it. You want more? There's more in the kitchen. You know, just, but it was a, that, that's what our life was, that those Sunday afternoons where we were able to just sit and eat and talk and uh, it was just a wonderful memory, and it was a tradition not just in my grandmother's house, but in houses all throughout the city. I mean, I don't know about your your neighborhood, but I do know that many of my friends on Sundays at that that just about that same time were at their grandparents' house eating dinner as a mm-hmm. family with yes. a bunch of people. Well, our situation was different. I mean, and any family can be, but for example, the one surviving grandmother I had lived with us when I was real little. So she, we were at the, at the house where she was, and food was very important. But I would say my family was more sedate than what you're describing. You know what I mean? It doesn't sound, you know, we didn't have that kind of a rollicking good time or whatever. I mean, it was, was yeah. fine. We had plenty to eat and so forth, and yeah. then went and watched yeah. television or something. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of arguments, too. <laughs> yeah. There were times where, there were times where that, the anger table was like a boxing ring where, you know, the fight was going on and and the tension was palpable, but we still ate. <laughs> yes. And also, I think you put at the top of your traditions list, New Year's Eve. And that was different yeah. with my family. I mean, my family was, uh, my immediate family, uh, my father was not a drinker. <laughs> okay. Um, 
years later, you know, when I was older and he would come to visit us with my my mother, he got into it because, you know, I, I became somewhat of a drinker. But, you know, so our New Year's Eve was not very, uh, again, you know, the, the time I read about in your book, you talk about, and I do remember this concept that you're grandmother let's say is making you're celebrating new year's at home she's making highballs to everybody and then at new year's eve itself or the midnight you and the other young kids get a little bit that's right and um the, that was a tradition where uh you know my, my family were not big drinkers either but on new year's eve uh we were permitted to drink a highball and our highball was a half a shot of seagram's with ginger ale and uh, it was the greatest thing in the world to be able to say, gee, I'm having a highball. And uh, then when we got to be 10, <laughs> there's a little bit more than half a shot in there. But it, it, was a, it was a part of our growing up where we were permitted to have that drink. And, and I don't know what people would think or say today. I don't know what anybody is saying or thinking about that. But it's something that we did and something I'll, I'll, I do remember. And I remember it fondly. And, um, but the other thing about our New Year's is it, the, the episode where my, my – I had an uncle who would go out into the middle of the street every New Year's at midnight and right. uh, in his long johns, in his long johns, and shoot his uh, rifle <laughs> into the air as a salute. Oh, my goodness. And I can't tell you, since I've put that story in here, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me who lived in that neighborhood and said, that was your uncle? <laughs> <laughs> and also you point out that in Amsterdam and so many of these mill towns back then, and we're talking the... 50s, probably in the 60s, uh, maybe even in the 70s. I don't know. There, there were all places. There were fraternal and social clubs you could go to for New Year's Eve parties with dining and so dancing, many. and and also a lot of the bars and restaurants. Exactly, and there, really, there was no there was no question being asked back at them. Well, where where should we go? There were so many choices, you know. Uh, and and you know, we, again, the West End, the Sending Neville Club, right down the street from us, always had a huge celebration that began at 10 and ended with the que famous question marks, you know, right. and, uh, serve breakfast. And, uh, that was the, that was the place where my mom and dad is their one date of the year where they dress up. And, uh, I can remember them. I can just remember being a kid, being so happy to see them all dressed up, going out to, to, to celebrate new year's Eve and knowing that they were going to have a good time. And another and, a point you made, and I've sometimes bring that up with my kids or I did when they were young, that it seemed, now you said three days, but it seemed to me I used to trick or treat for like a week up on Reed Hill. <laughs> really? You're a little bit older than I am, and maybe that was the case. Um, not by much, though. I'm, you know, I'm 63 now, and, and uh, I can only remember three days. Right. <laughs> <a week>. Well, <laughs> I'm 71, almost 72. Okay, but so Yeah, but I remember going out, you know, it, was a, it got to be like your job, you know. <laughs> I do remember, I just remember those three nights, uh, that by the third night, you were kind of tired of going out and getting candy, you know? <laughs> yeah, and the people him again, you know, gee. But do you remember, do you remember how everyone, every door you knocked, there were no, there were no lights turned off, it was everyone had something to give to you, and you could go back, and, and you know, more than once, if you yep. played your, your, yep. your cards correctly, and, and go to the best places two or three times, and, uh. It was just a, it was really truly uh, 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 an amazing thing compared to today. It was an amazing thing. Well, let me end with a, a, a food list. Uh, you had the best Amsterdam pizza, and again, uh, 
communities all around the east, anyway, that have a lot of pizza parlors can relate to this. The, the top two are still in business. Battisti's Pizza and Russo's come in the exactly. top ten. Exactly. They are. And and their great pizzas are probably one of the reasons they are still in business. That plus plus extended families who have kept those those places going. And, um, uh, you know, they continue to this day. If I, I say that I've... I've had a Batistis pizza in 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s and <laughs> 90s and right up until now. Right. And I can tell you that the one today tastes very, very, very similar. Well, crust and again, always the day. contrary. And our family favorite was Scafidi's because yeah. when we moved up from Reed Hill up to uh, off Clisby Avenue and Peter Lane, they lived near us for one thing, you know, the Scafidi okay. family. Yeah. So, yeah. But I tell you, Mike, we're just out of time. Mike's in Quanti's book, Amsterdam, New York, Top Ten Lists, available at Liberty Fresh Market and the Bookhound in Amsterdam. Uh, go online to genium.com forward slash book. Uh, thank you, Mike. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.